0: welcome back or welcome to the single track podcast i'm your host finn melanson and in this episode abby levine returns to the show to talk all things trail running media if you're a fan of the behind the scenes of our sport like i am you'll really enjoy this one a few announcements before we get started first the good folks at free trail are doing a memorial day fundraiser for the wounded warrior project Last year, they raised over $2,500 to help veterans get critical mental health services. This year, they've set a goal to raise over $4,000, and at the time of this recording, they are halfway there. So if you're able to support this initiative, click the campaign link in the show notes of this episode. Second, and switching gears for a moment, in a recent episode of the podcast, I started a conversation about the outsourcing of the Broken Arrow live stream. Specifically, I stated that Strava had been a sponsor in years past and that Ultra Sign Up was the new sponsor for 2023, but I neglected to provide important additional context. Specifically, that Scott Rokas has been directing the Broken Arrow media efforts like the photography team since the inaugural event in 2016 and has been producing the live stream since its start in 2021. It is true that Scott recently took a position as media director at Ultra Sign Up and that the live stream is technically outsourced at this point. But at the same time, it's important to acknowledge, and again, I missed this during the conversation, that the ability to properly tell the event story has not changed as the original visual media leadership is still operating in production. Okay, with that, let's get started. Abby Levine, it's great to have you back on the Single Track Podcast.
1: Thank you, Finn, for having me. We've been chatting a lot with Dan and Jack and you about Trail T number two, and it hasn't happened. So excited that we get to chat at least and make Dan and Jack jealous.
0: Yes, we'll, we'll we'll get one in. We'll get one in soon. First thing to cover, I think we we didn't really go much into your background on your first appearance with Jack and Dan, and I think it'd be good to go through that a little bit just to set the table for. Some of these fun talking points we have here today. I think uh, you know, you have a background in collegiate running, in pro trail running. You currently work for outside and outdoor media. Take this wherever you want, but how do those experiences influence your thoughts on the sport and, and your perspective on like some of the topics we'll cover today, like you know, running content and how pro athletes navigate social media and stuff like that?
1: So after I ran in college. I actually was a professional triathlete for several years. And those years, I feel like inform my perspective now more than any time in my life. And the reason I ended up quitting triathlon was I I won a national championship and was so unhappy across the finish line and just truly did not care that I decided professional sports were just not for me and kind of fell into trail running by accident after that. Uh, But I think that experience like frankly really took away that rose colored lens for professional sport for me and has made me quite cynical i think mm. uh, and also just give has given me a perspective of we are so lucky to get to do this for fun and if it's not fun there's no point and there's a lot more to life than professional or amateur endurance sports know if that answers your question at all.
0: There's a lot I want to get into though like the first thing you said you were unhappy after winning a national championship in triathlon and what I'm reminded of is what what Jack said towards the end of our last conversation where even when he's engaged and he's sort of at his highest peak of physical potential etc or he accomplishes something great that whole process he's not necessarily at his happiness so sorry his happiest so talk about that more if you don't mind.
1: I would say the difference there, perhaps, is that Jack loves the process. And I don't want to speak for Jack too much, but my sense of him is he. this is his whole life, his whole world. He lives and breathes this. He's studying the data and the times and dreaming up his next project. And like chasing that carrot is so motivating to him. And it was to me, too, in a sense, in triathlon. I Like trail running, there's so many variables to improve upon in triathlon, which I loved but I really didn't fit in super well in the tri- in the triathlon community. And from like a personal well-being perspective, was unhappy. And I had a couple experiences winning races where the people I beat were not nice to me. And you're just like, why, why am I doing this silly little sport if we can't at least like – All lift each other up and have a good time and have like truly have fun, even if the race itself is type two fun and like the anxiety and the stress of getting to the race and setting up your bike and figuring out where you're going to stay all that stuff. Like, I don't enjoy any of that, so that has always stressed me out. But in addition to that, if at least after the race you're not having fun with your competitors, why are you doing this?
0: Do you still harbor a lot of cynicism about the pro? athlete side of endurance sports. I, I, I know that triathlon and trail running, there are some similarities. There's a lot of differences too. So like extending those experiences in the trail, do you are you similarly cynical about the environment or do you think things are changing? Like what are your thoughts there?
1: Yes, I'm relatively cynical. <laughs> I say with trepidation. Uh, that's partly just because like as you know, I am—I love sports. I'm a huge sports fan. I'm a diehard Boston sports fan. I follow all of the major sports quite religiously. And when you contextualize a sport like trail running or triathlon in the greater fabric of professional sport at large, they are so small. Nobody cares. Nobody's making a lot of money. You just can't even really compare them. And yet I think a lot of professional endurance athletes – in their own minds have elevated themselves to the level of a professional NFL player, NBA, et cetera. And it causes this weird dichotomy paradox where people have this inflated self-worth perhaps, but it's also like, I think there's a level of insecurity and like trying to prove this is the right path. And I can tell you from experience, when I was a, a triathlete, I'm from, like you, I'm from New England, puritanical, you know, (laughs) New England family. And when I would go home and people would ask me, what do you do? And I said I was a professional triathlete. It was just deer in the headlights versus so-and-so's son who's working on Wall Street or so-and-so's daughter who's doing her residency to be a cardiac surgeon. And I felt a huge amount of insecurity around that. And I think it, it forced me to overcompensate in ways that I'm not proud of. And Mm. I think that you, you see quite a bit of that in the sport. And I'm really not trying to shit on people. It's not like an individual person's fault. It's like it, I think truly the environment it's, we've elevated the sport to a level that it's not quite at yet. And so that causes friction.
0: Do you think that if the if our sport like trail running, for example, was at the same level of popularity as some of these more mainstream sports like basketball or soccer or football, that the way the athletes in our sport currently carry themselves would make a lot more sense? Do you think that like there should be like a a change in the way that pro athletes relate to the amount of fans they have or the rest of the sport? Like, I don't know if that's, if I'm making any sense there, but what are your thoughts?
1: I mean, it's a good question because I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that athletes in big time sports have any fewer ego issues than trail runners. <laughs> They're just perhaps different. Uh, I don't know if you saw JT's quote after game six against, uh, yes. against Philly, where he said the, the Celtics had come from behind in that game. And uh, JT, he – came alive in the fourth quarter and who's the star on the Celtics. And the reporter on the floor asked him after the game, you had a horrible first quarter. What happened? You were shooting lights out in the fourth quarter. And he goes, humbly, I'm one of the best athletes in the world. And it, which he then backed that up in game seven when we won. But that really struck me at, This is perhaps slightly off topic, but it is kind of interesting. That level of confidence probably has gotten him to the level of success that he's had in the NBA, but it really makes it hard to root for him.
0: What was your reaction when you either heard him say that in the interview or saw it in the newspaper the next day?
1: I watched it live and I was horrified. I like texted it to multiple people and just like, please make sense of this for me because... You know, I want to root for him. I love the Celtics, but I'm having some cognitive dissonance right now because this guy is coming across as really unlikable. Uh, so, anyway, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not trying to sugarcoat uh, big time sports. I just think the issues are different. That's perhaps an issue of overconfidence, and in trail running, you see more issues of insecurity. And so, the last thing I was just going to say is. As trail running has grown, and I'm, I am only came into the sport seven years ago, six or seven years ago, so I'm relatively new and still trying to piece the history together. But talking to elders in the sport who have been around for a long time, you get the sense that their motivations for getting into the sport and competing look quite different than the motivations of a lot of people now, in the sense that while... Probably everyone trail running loves the mountains, loves the trails, loves being outside. You have these additional variables of money and some amount of renown and a career path. And even if your intentions are super pure, which is a loaded term, it's hard not to have those additional variables interplay in in your what your motivations become. So... As the sport grows and monetizes, it's only going to move further away from what the sport looked like 20 years ago. And I think people who have been around for a long time, a lot of them would say that's not necessarily a good thing from a cultural perspective, even though they would also, I think, say it is good from like a financial and a sustainability perspective. So it's all it's so many variables
0: it's pretty funny when you said that you didn't appreciate the Jason Tatum quote before you said that I had assumed you were going down the avenue of like, that's actually awesome. I'm glad he was, you know, open and confident and forthright. And we need more of that. So like I had to kind of rethink how I was going to respond, but I, I, I do get the sense that in that community, way more people at the very least condone what he said there and appreciate the confidence. And I feel like if, if an athlete said something to that effect in our sport, I am the best or one of the best. I am going to win Western States. I am going to win UTMB. There would be this massive backlash. So what's? do you have any thoughts on why there might be different expectations between fans in those two areas?
1: That's a really good question. I guess that's... You're presuming that most people interpreted JT's quote positively? Or at
0: least condoned it. At least condoned it.
1: Which... To be fair, the Celtics then tweeted after game seven, his quote with the score of game seven, or like his points, because JT scored the most points anyone's ever scored in a game seven ever. It was like 51 or 52 points, which beat Seth Curry's record he had just set a couple weeks ago. And when I saw that, I was like, hell yes. Like I my perspective totally flipped because he had backed it up, just to be fair. Like I did come around a little bit to it. Uh, but there's something about, I would say it's a spraying thing and it felt like spraying when he said it in game six and when they reframed it after game seven and he had the data to back it up. I, it was like, hell yeah. And so I think it's the same thing in trail running where if you say you're going to win Western States, that to me is spraying. And I don't really like spraying in any context, whether it's FKTs or race, a different sport.
0: something I've always been fascinated by is to what extent could we allow people's internal dialogue to be publicized? Because I'm sure JT is not the only athlete that thinks he is the best or one of the best. And I'm sure you could say the same thing about trailing, go down the line of the elite men and women out there. They probably, they'd be lying to themselves if they didn't have similar internal dialogue. So I guess my question is like, at what point do we encourage that internal dialogue to be public versus where do we draw the line and why do we draw the line at like this particular phrasing of, you know, who you are as an athlete and your goals and stuff like that?
1: It's a great question. And yeah, it just gets into the nuances of our sociocultural framework, I guess, and what's considered acceptable and what's not, you know, that it's interesting though. I think about that quite a bit because when I was a triathlete, I, I had just finished running competitively uh, in the NCAA and a lot at the time, most triathletes had not run division one in college. And, and for some reason, I actually ran better or at least comparable off the bike as I did just kind of going straight into a track meet. And that filled me with a level of confidence where I felt like if I came in within two minutes of the front group on at like the World uh, Cup or lower level, if I came in within two minutes of the front group on the bike, I could run everyone down and win the race. And that's what happened. And then I got to trail running and I came in as a newbie to the sport, very clumsy, not good on technical terrain, back to just pure running. I didn't feel like I had any leg up on anyone. And I truly feel like I have suffered the consequences of that lack of self confidence sense. And looking back on my triathlon career, I think I overperformed because I had that confidence and in running I've underperformed and it's, it's frustrating, but there's like what it's hard to like convince yourself to be confident. Like I'm just not a confident person in general. If I go into the race, I never think I'm going to do well. I always assume something's going to go wrong, which is part of the alert. You know, like you w- constantly want to figure out how to work through that. Uh, but the con- I think that yeah, the mental side of sport is much bigger than we give it credit.
0: Oh my gosh, 100% agree. I am not nearly the athlete you or Jack or or Dan is, but I definitely deal with st- uh, similar confidence issues. And I think that's maybe why I personally feel I identify with someone like a Jason Tatum, for example, who's willing to put that out there publicly because I'm like, you know, that's probably to to your point, what you just said, that's probably what gets him over the finish line in terms of making a few extra three pointers or making that clutch basket at the end of the game. Like if that's what gets you there, I mean, maybe I have to give it some credence to some extent.
1: Uh, Totally. I agree. Even if it is somewhat abrasive and you could even, I bet it goes deeper than that. Like he probably is in the NBA because he has that winner's mindset
0: you mentioned abrasiveness there. And you you said earlier in the conversation that there was a point in your triathlon career where you were looking at a lot of your colleagues or your competitors in the sport. And there there wasn't really this generative relationship there. It was very cutthroat, mean, et cetera. And I bring it up because I had actually tweeted out something uh, maybe four or five months ago asking if there have ever been any great rivalries in the sport. And There wasn't a lot of stuff that was brought up that was like concrete. A lot of things were hypothetical and imagined like I wish these two people, you know, were on the same start line and duking it out. But we haven't seen much dialogue in our sport from the athletes themselves about like, oh, these are my competitors. And we have this history of like not liking each other, wanting to beat each other. But I have to imagine that behind the scenes that stuff exists. So do you have any theories on a, if that's true, and B, why that stuff is sort of behind the scenes and out of the public eye, out of the fan eye?
1: That's a great question. When I came into trail running, the attitude presented to me very much was your competitors are your friends. And I personally feel like I might have leaned into that a little bit too hard, where my killer competitive instinct kind of died off. Guy like was so competitive in high school and in college and as a triathlete and then I got to trail running where I felt like that was frowned upon and I kind of lost it. Uh I don't know if everyone feels like that. I would I guess I'd also just venture to guess that a there's so many races to choose from that it's not like everyone's showing up to the same start line over and over and over and one per yeah. Person A wins the first time, and then person B wins, and then suddenly you have this naturally born rivalry. But yeah, I feel like more than that, it's a cultural thing. I could be totally wrong, though. I'd love for people to disagree with me. I This is complete conjecture. I have no data to back up what I'm saying.
0: It's it's interesting too that killer instinct can sort of die off, or competitiveness can die off, or at the very least, it's it can be environmental or situational, and like there can be a part of your life where it's it's there, it's readily apparent it's on the surface, you're utilizing it, but then you move somewhere else, you get into a different scene, and you become a different person. Like I would have thought even just prior to this conversation, that that's just a part of your DNA and it exists even until you're 90, like you're trying to beat your wife of 60 years in chess because you just can't turn it off or something like that, you know?
1: I mean, it is. I have a wordle tally with two of my college friends. Like we've turned that into a competitive game. It's yes, I have to very actively turn it off in most aspects. And in trail running, I am very competitive with myself. And with the people immediately around me in the race, I love hunting people down in the race. But Mm. when it comes to like this person, because in in high school, I still remember I had clear rivals in other schools and like we were not friends. I was there to beat them. And it's hard to bring that level of animal That's the wrong word, but passion to your rivals in trail running.
0: Another thank you to sponsor HVMN. HVMN is my choice for exogenous ketones. If you are curious about using exogenous ketones in your training, racing, and day-to-day life, head over to HVMN.com, get a bottle of Ketone IQ, and if you want a 20% discount in the process, use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off your next order. All right, I've got this list of topics to go through. The first one here... Is about professional athletes, professional endurance athletes outsourcing social media posts, and I, I guess there's multiple questions here. The first being, is it pervasive? If so, why should it be allowed? Disallowed? Should they have to disclose all this? So take it wherever you want. Like, what, what are your thoughts here?
1: Well, I should probably preface this answer with I am not a big fan of like the whole professional athlete persona on social media, and I actually wrote a paper about this in Good. grad school. So I lived with Emma Coburn when I moved to Boulder for grad school. I was I did a journalism program at CU and we I was in an ethics and journalism class and this was like 2013. So I had just downloaded Instagram like a year or two beforehand in undergrad and the like button had just – the little – yeah, I guess it's called the like button – had just come out within the last year and – living with her during that time, I observed how professional athletes were starting to adapt to using that platform in a more professional sense. And for example, New Balance would send her a pair of shoes and there would be a little card in the box that had a hashtag. And it didn't say, you must post this pair of shoes with this hashtag. But the implication was, we sent you these so you're going to put them on social media and frame it in this way that we want you to. And there was no sponsored post tag at that time. Yeah. And I, I remember reading through Instagram's rules and that was actually somewhat against the rules. And so I wrote a paper arguing that this was ambiguous at best. And, and nothing against Emma. I mean, that's just what everyone was doing. Yeah, yeah. But it was all so behind the scenes. And now everyone knows that happens. But in 2013, I don't think anyone realized that they were having the wool pulled over their eyes like that. And I can only imagine really what the next level of of that is now in, in 2023. Uh, to answer your your question about having people post on social media for you, I just find that such a bizarre concept. I, I, you know, I personally follow people on Instagram that I want to keep up with. I want to know what they're up yeah. to. I want to be able to celebrate their victories with them and text them if they post something that life is really getting them down. And if suddenly someone else is running your social media for you, then it's not you posting it. It's someone else. And why would I want to be following this person I don't know who's pretending to be you posting things? It just doesn't make a ton of sense to me. And then to answer your question about the ethics side of it, it does seem a little in the ethical gray zone, in my opinion. I don't think it's – it's definitely not illegal, but it's worth perhaps a second, in my opinion, a second uh, question of like, is this really worth my time? Is this something that I have 24 hours in the day? Do I want to be spending any of those minutes consuming this content.
0: I totally agree with you on the first part. I I definitely don't like scrolling through my feed and then finding an athlete's post where they say something like, when I get to mile 78 in a race, and I'm at high elevation, it gets super hard to eat solid foods. And that's why I turn to this drink mix. And (laughs) oh, by the way, use, you know, mark 17 at checkout for 17% off your day. Like I take total issue with that because basically what happened, I presume is that there was some marketing manager on the brand side who just sent them this template and they literally just copy and pasted it into the description of their photo and just said like, they just called it a day. I have I have huge issue with that.
1: Well, and in, in that particular case, I think that that person, they want, that that's a third case where they want to connect with their audience and they want to give their audience a real story. So what they end up doing is a bait and switch and being at the end, the the end of that doesn't feel good because now you've read five paragraphs and suddenly you realize the entire story, the punchline is to get the coupon code.
0: There are, I think there are posts out there that I'll see and it's like, okay, yes, there is a little bit of marketing material in one paragraph, but like maybe I'm okay, I'm I'm saying with the bait and switch, because as long as like there was like five paragraphs of like, relatability to whatever the photo is, and like where they're at with their training or whatever, like, and then at the end of it, there's something for, you know, you name it, whatever apparel or, or nutrition company out there, I think I'm okay with that. For me, it's just the verbatim reposting of marketing material, no customization and no, yeah, no mm. adjustment to whoever your audience is. And a because I think it's, to some extent, a bit obnoxious. But B, I actually think that they're doing themselves a disservice because they're probably going to lose trust with their audience. They're going to probably have people end up unfollowing them. So they they lose that that reach that they initially sold to the brand. And then, yeah, people are just going to assume that you know they're no longer authentic or at times they're willing to be authentic because they haven't put any effort into that post.
1: I agree. This does, though, get to this bigger question of what are these social media platforms trying to accomplish for us. And you think back to how athlete marketing worked 20 years ago. It was mostly brands using image and likeness for their own purposes. And now suddenly the script has flipped where athletes have to be the ones marketing themselves and also marketing the brands. And A, is that more effective? I I genuinely would love to know that answer.
0: Yeah. Is having
1: 10,000 I mean, let's say you have 10,000 followers on Instagram, which is obviously a small following, but there's plenty of p- p- in trail running, I feel like that's a realistic number to throw out. <laughs> 10 to 100,000. Maybe 10% of those people see your post. Maybe 1% click your link in bio. Maybe 1% of that 1% Take any action in terms of buying the product or considering buying the product, then or at any point in the future, was it real? Was the juice really worth the squeezer for that brand, versus yeah. the brand taking pride in signing someone like Courtney or or Jim, and then using a f- a testimony from them or footage from a race. And just showing, oh, wow, Courtney ran one UTMB in the, what are her new shorts called? The Short Knees.
0: The Short Knees. Hallelujah. I'm so glad they're here. (laughs)
1: Yes, me too. (laughs) (laughs) That's testament that, I mean, we know she loves baggy shorts. She's won every single one of her races in baggy shorts. At least for her, they work and lead to success. I I personally am so much more compelled by seeing content about that from the brand in an ad or something, even though, I mean, ads are a whole other story, but then Courtney, who we know is getting paid to say that they're so great.
0: I want to run this idea by you. You can totally pick it apart because I was thinking prior to our conversation, how I would answer this question. And I'm surprised. To my knowledge, that there is not a ghost writing industry that exists around pro endurance athletes at scale yet. So, like if I, if I was an athlete maybe slightly below Courtney's stature, and I was trying to get a new contract or build my presence, and I worked a full time job, but then I got like this fifteen thousand dollar deal from, let's just say Nike. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure one of the first things I would do if I had the disposable income is I would hire a ghostwriter for like five or 10 grand and they would be charged with meeting with me extensively for like the first two to three weeks of our relationship, like knowing my habits, knowing my voice, knowing what I like, don't like what I want to speak about. And then maybe after that meeting on like a weekly cadence or maybe sending them voice memos and they just totally take over all of my social channels and they're tasked with yeah, posting on a regular cadence, making it pretty authentic. So not just the sponsored posts, but like training update posts, race update posts. And I have effectively outsourced the work of being a marketer in addition to being an athlete. And the content theoretically is high quality. Like I've read a lot of, Ghost-written autobiographies of like the Michael Jordans of the world. And, you know,
1: Andre Agassi, have you read Andre
0: Agassi? Exactly. And, and it, can so good. Good. It, it can be good. It can be good. I think if, if the writer gets to know the athlete on a deeply personal level. So pick that apart. But what, what do you think of that?
1: First of all, you would do this. You're saying you would do this.
0: If I was an athlete, if I was a good runner, and I had a chance to get like an entry level contract into the sport I would outsource all of the marketing, all of the content production so that I can focus on performance. Hopefully I do well during that year if it's like a one-year deal. But in in that process, simultaneously, there's some person who I have hired that is amazing at social media, that knows my voice and can grow my following and stuff so that by the end of the year, even if the racing hasn't worked out, I now have an even bigger audience to fall back on as like a safety net. Okay. And the content is is theoretically decent. It's, like, not, like, you know, chat GPT response about, like, why I like running.
1: So, first of all, this to some degree already does exist. Sweet. I know a couple people in triathlon who pay people to do all their social media for them, and that includes injury updates, training updates, et cetera. And you can tell it's not written by them sometimes because – this is actually how I discovered it with one person. all of his posts suddenly had British spelling on all of them. (laughs) (laughs) And so I asked him, I'm like, are you ready? Like, do you have someone writing all your posts for him? And he said, yeah, I, you know, triathlon, I don't want to do this, but I'm being forced to by these brands that I'm working with and by USA Triathlon, and so I'm outsourcing it. And it's not working quite as well as I think you're hoping it would, Finn. Uh, But it is happening. It does, though, get to this bigger question of, should professional athletes be forced to be social media marketers and i would i would answer no i think that's ridiculous and i i would encourage athletes to try to sign contracts where big social media asks are not baked into them You know, like my boyfriend, Kyle, who's sponsored by Black Diamond, has no social media requirements and he he'll tag them in photos and and talk about them organically when he feels like it. But I think that's really freed him to be himself in a way that people appreciate. And you and like he really does have an authentic social media presence. And sometimes he doesn't post for two months and no one cares. And and then he can come back to it when he feels refreshed and actually has something to say or has something, a photo he wants to share. And I think from a, I mean, we'll have to see long-term how that plays out for him, but in the several years he's been doing that, I feel like it's really helped his reputation as someone that people trust. Yes, Kyle does very technical outings and people come to him for very technical high-risk expertise. And I think that translates to like, His core personality. And if he suddenly had to post about certain clothes and headlamps and et cetera, I I think that trust would start to erode.
0: Just, I, I guess it's secondhand, but in his experience, do you think that his sponsors understand the value he's providing? Like, is a lot of it word of mouth? Like, is he meeting people in Boulder or in that area and they're coming to him kind of like on a one to one level or can they measure it on like a? analytics dashboard as well. And it shows up.
1: Well, and this was kind of one of my other points related to this question. I think just zooming into social media is missing the the big picture. And in Kyle's case, Black Diamond invests quite heavily in other forms of media, including films and projects. And so you can find Kyle running in Black Diamond equipment on YouTube, and those videos have tons and tons of views. He has two films that have won awards at mountain film festivals and and that are being seen across the world in these prestigious venues. I don't know the ROI on that compared to a social media post, but it does present another opportunity for marketing of athletes. That isn't just them posting on social media.
0: I think this is the perfect transition to our next topic, which is running films as sponsored content. If we're agreeing that it is essentially sponsored content, are yes, these pieces of content good or bad for our trail running community?
1: Well, I think we have to set the the groundwork, which is there isn't a lot of content beyond them. Yep. If we had Jimmy Chins coming in with Nat Geo making these incredible documentaries about athletes that are winning Oscars... I think this entire industry might look a little bit more silly, but it's literally all we have. And I can tell you as someone that works in the media, the outdoor media industry, there just is not a lot of money at these publications. And even the publications are reliant on brands and their money if they want to do anything, including film production. So with that in mind, I I don't take issue with this branded content just because there's nothing else. <laughs> I would love to see other things as well. And and then going back to the previous question, I, I personally, selfishly would rather watch, if a company is going to spend a million dollars on a marketing campaign, I'd rather watch a five-minute video than see Instagram ads for six months.
0: I had a hard time racking my brain for, I think you kind of mentioned it, what isn't Sponsored content in our world. Like, even this podcast conversation is sponsored by Rabbit and HVMN. Like, it's, but it, but is that Good job, Finn. The way, to,
1: way to get your, your sponsors in.
0: <laughs> Got the plug. This is one of the seven touches we need to make a conversion <laughs> yeah. on a new listener. But I, I had a hard time decoupling that. And so I think when it comes to evaluation for me, like, if it's a movie, for example, does it actually have good story design? Does it have beats? Does it have scenes? Does it have sequences? are there meaningful values and character changes at stake in every moment a lot there- of them
1: no and i a actually lot of them i have hurt kyle's feelings about some of his films because i've told them they don't have enough narrative <laughs> i you know that's that's a fact and and again i mean that's because it's a marketing department that's making the content it's not like a film like a production agency sometimes sometimes it is sometimes it's not But yeah, I mean, I agree. I would love to see more storytelling that's just based off of a beautiful story rather than a marketing department saying, shoot, we have a pair of shoes coming out next year. We need to make some films around them. And then suddenly they're coming up with these contrived quote unquote stories that may or may not have a storyline basically to just show off their shoes.
0: Yeah there there's one that I just watched recently cuz I was we were doing the broadcast for Cocodone and I had to do some last minute research and I came across this film that Dylan Harris did about Eric Sensman running it last year and I I actually think from like a story design standpoint it's one of the best trail running films that's come out in the past two to three years like eric is definitely he's the protagonist he has this conception of what the experience is going to be like and how he'll fare and then he gets into the belly of the beast he suffers immensely he has all these intentions but faces all these obstacles and it's not clear that you know he's going to overcome and get through and he has to lean on a lot of people and then he finally does and it strips him bare and he definitely changes very much as a human being by the end of it. So there's, there is that like change in values and change in the person who was at the start and who was at the end. And, you know, at the end of the day, did it help Aravipa like drive registrations to the event and to future, you know, races? Absolutely. No question. Like there was like a direct line you could draw from marketing ROI standpoint, but I think it also just a lot of people watched it and it didn't make them want to go sign up for the race but like they just identify with the character more the sport more potentially became fans so even when something is sponsored content i think there can be all of these awesome secondary effects that happen that are that are good and wholesome
1: oh absolutely i totally agree it's definitely not a black and white situation some content just is, is better than others but i and to the personal narrative perspective like that's how you build fans is by showcasing people's stories and Their trials and tribulations and I think all of that is great. And if brands are willing to pay for it, awesome because no one else is.
0: What are some of your favorite films or pieces of content that have come out in recent years or that just drew you into the sport?
1: I mean, I have to be biased. As much as I give Kyle shit, I do love his films and they are very unique in the sense that Kyle is a musician and it incorporates him playing music and running and they're thomas woodson who is a direct the director of them it comes in with this really fresh unique perspective that you're just not seeing in other uh, running films so yeah the first one tempo one is is on youtube and tempo two which won uh, an award at kendall mountain film festival last fall i think it comes out soon it takes place in brazil and that was that This is just me hyping up Kyle, I guess, on this (laughs) episode. You're welcome, Kyle. Tempo 2 was born out of Tempo 1. This Brazilian runner, Ojin, saw the first film and connected with Kyle, and they became friends just online talking about their shared love of running and music. And so they then went down to Brazil to make this film about Ojin, who's never left the greater Rio area in his life. Uh, It's amazing. Beautiful. Definitely makes me want to go to Brazil. Uh, But beyond Kyle content, uh, I guess we'll keep it in the the Black Diamond family. I also love Joe Grant's films about Nolan's and the 14 years record and also the Colorado Trail. Just really beautiful, artsy. And his films, like they are sponsored by Black Diamond, but really do not feel like they're they're peddling an agenda like they were born out of Joe's very artistic mind.
0: Yeah. And and to say one more thing about like the tempo films, for example, and we, we talk about this a lot on the show. I, I think there is a lot of value in using media and film as a way to draw connections between two seemingly disparate activities or passions like music and running or even placemaking, like getting more in-depth understanding about like the Brazil running scene. Like, I think that there's really, even, even if it's just a visual component or like, you know, an, in the moment, one-off conversation, I think there's a lot of value and inspiration in those films.
1: Yes. Yeah. I agree. All right. How about I, you? What? well, you said Eric <laughs> Sensen's film, but what else?
0: I am so cliche. All of my favorite stuff is, is, is pretty, I, I think, I don't think it would like surprise anybody. I mean, the, the film that set off the butterfly effect for me is Billy Yang's shaman film.
1: I don't think I, I've I, seen that.
0: Oh, it's excellent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, tw- it's, it's 2015 UTMB. It's oh. that early days of the Nike trail running team. So like Sally McRae, Tim Tollefson, David Laney, Ryan Gelfie, Zach Miller, they all take this trip out to Chamonix. It's, I think, one of the first pieces of content that a lot of an American runner were exposed to and made them want to do the race. And it's good. There is some good narrative arc in it and storytelling as well. So I will watch yeah. it. Thank you. It's good. It's good. Just
1: belying my ignorance over here.
0: (laughs) Maybe closing out the whole running content section discussion, should we be uncritical and grateful that running content is even being produced in the first place? Or should we be, I don't want to say harsh, but like open to saying like, this could have been done better. That's trash, stuff like that. What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I feel like art is meant to be critiqued. If you can't critique it, what's the point?
0: I agree. I think that's the best way for refining things and making it better. And uh, and I, for I making
1: think... sense of the world and what we're watching too. Literally yep. every piece of art ever, every film, there's a film review online. People are writing reviews. Rotten Tomatoes exists because of people critiquing things. I think it's part of the human condition to want to analyze and pick things apart. And what was the other part of your question? Do Should we be grateful that this exists at all? Oh, man. Uh,
0: do you get that there's a sense of that? Do you think that, and again, it's a totally okay to implicate me in this process because I am one of said content creators, but like, do you get that there's a sense in the community where like, if somebody is creating a podcast or a movie or some something regular that people can consume that like, there should be this like aura around it and reverence around it? Like, do you get that? sense that like mm. creators are giving off that vibe.
1: Like a righteousness.
0: A righteousness to it all. Yeah.
1: Yes. I, I do feel like there's a bit of righteousness. And I think maybe that's just because if you zoom back in human history, we're just at the precipice of this time where media is so democratized and it's so easy to create your own media and put it out there. That it's all still quite new and as a result, everyone feels like they're being groundbreaking pioneers in this medium or various media. I think that will change. If you think back to like the time of Gutenberg and the first Bible that was published, that was a groundbreaking Achievement, And I imagine for the next couple hundred years, every time those monks were hand printing page by page by page of the Bible in various books, those efforts were celebrated. And now we kind of take book printing for granted. It's hard to imagine a reality in which self-published media doesn't get normalized and we stop being so irreverent around it
0: at least from my own personal experience, one of the revelations has been, or I shouldn't say revelations, but areas of awareness has been how your mind reacts to suddenly being accountable to more than just like the immediate 10 to 20 people that you interact with at work or in your immediate day-to-day life on a daily basis. Like as soon as you're putting stuff out into the world that in the case of trail running reaches maybe hundreds or a couple thousands of people, all of a sudden you, you do feel this spotlight effect for sure. And I think you do your initial reaction is to get very guarded and you develop an ego. Like I am not immune to this. There's no question that in the process of the last year or two, I've developed this incredible ego and I of course only want to see like positive things said about the podcast. But at the same time, I also, there's like the better angels of my nature that recognize that is not a good way to like interface with the world like you need to be open and the way things get better and the way you meet cool people and discuss good ideas is by being receptive to every single thing that comes your way so that's that's been something i've had to work on for sure i will definitely confide that
1: well you're at the nexus of your work is your passion which extends to your passion of running and so i think it's totally valid literally this is your job. You are pouring blood, sweat, and tears into producing this podcast and running media. And so I think it's totally fair to be upset if someone criticizes it. I think about the work I do every day. I'm sitting at the computer, you know, getting frustrated for 10 hours a day. I'm going to be upset if someone says I did, did a bad job. It's like, but I worked so hard on that thing and had to come over, overcome all these obstacles and all this, these pol- this politics and People were being difficult and blah, blah, blah. Like I'm going to take it personally and be upset if someone criticizes my work. So likewise with your work, I think that's totally justified. But it just perhaps feels a little bit differently because it is also your passion and extends into, into your life outside of work. The second part of what you said, I now can't remember what the second part of what you said that I was going to respond to.
0: One more thank you to Rabbit for sponsoring this episode as well. Want to know something cool about Rabbit? They don't just make the best trail running apparel. They also make really comfortable loungewear. Take my word for it. Head over to their website and order a pair of their jog around sweatpants. You can thank me later. Oh, and don't forget to use code singletrack20 at checkout for 20% off your next order. I was telling you before we hit the record button that I think one of the, and this is something I tell fellow content creators to the extent that I have experience in this area. I say, look, like, I think you do have to decouple your ego from the whole process and just purely operate from a position of joy and like the opportunity to create the content. And you just have to like kind of put some safeguards up, like, look, if this was all to fall apart tomorrow, which it very well could, you have to be totally okay with that. Like the idea of like losing an audience or losing guests, stuff like that, you have to be okay with that. You have to do like some fear setting. Like, what is the worst alternative? Like for me, I was saying, like, all right, tomorrow if it all falls apart, I'll go be. And Amazon delivery driver, and I'll find a way to be stoked on that. It's all good, and I think once you think in those terms, at least for me, you gain a sense of freedom and like the positive and the negative. It's all just awesome feedback that you that you use however you wish.
1: And that kind of sounds like having a process oriented mindset versus an outcome oriented yep. mindset, which is something that is also useful, I feel like, in running itself where if you're so fixated on the result and you can't enjoy the process, then suddenly your entire self-worth is wrapped up in this result which may or may not go the way you wanted it to. And so there's a very high probability that you'll be unhappy. And I I remembered uh, what I was going to say, which is you're now in, in a spotlight of some size and... I've seen this on Twitter and I totally get it because I do the same thing where if someone says something to you, has a question, has a critique, you feel – they feel like they know you. You do not know them. They have a level of anonymity which allows them to be perhaps not as nice. I'm not – I mean I haven't seen like negative comments about you on Twitter but just in general like there is that level of anonymity people can hide behind And you like your reputation is at stake. So even if someone just says something nice, like perhaps you feel compelled to respond because that's your reputation. And if someone came up to you on the street and was like, hey, Finn, love the podcast, of course you would say, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. And the Internet just makes it so easy suddenly to be bombarded with voices and thoughts and feedback that that does put you in this position where perhaps like it is a little bit overwhelming to suddenly be in the public eye and have all these people talking at you and trying to respond to all of them.
0: You have a much larger reach than I do, especially with your personal following. Like, how do you think about anonymity versus being a relatively public figure? Of course, setting the bounds that like our community is small, it's niche, but like-
1: I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Let's- Yeah, we'll collectively roll roll our eyes, but but still (laughs)
0: like- Like, how how do you think about that? Do do you crave uh, like a a former era of anonymity? Do you embrace like the relatively public nature of how you operate in the sport? Like, what are your thoughts there?
1: You know, I feel like there's no difference really between having a thousand followers on Instagram and fifteen thousand followers on Instagram or whatever. It's as soon as one person you don't know follows you. Why is that any different than a ton of people that you don't know that follow you? I think about this in the context of I grew up – I did a lot of acting growing up. And I – in order not to get nervous when I was performing, I would tell myself all you have to do is the same exact performance that you would do if no one was watching or one person was watching. There's nothing different about it than performing in front of thousands of people. And I feel like social media, I, th- that's the attitude I've tried to take. And circling back to what we were saying earlier, i if I'm going to be on social media, I just want to be myself. I don't want to like pretend to be somebody I'm not. And so in that same vein, I really treat social media like I'm just talking to my friends, maybe to my detriment because I really have no filter. <laughs> but where the only difference there is if you get flooded with DMs, and I get a lot of anxiety around that, honestly. When I, I was supposed to race Lake Sonoma and then I got sick and injured the week of the race and I posted something on Instagram about it and I, it was so kind. People were so, so kind. I got hundreds of of DMs, which has never happened to me. Like I'm not like, look at me, I'm so popular. Like no, this very fluke uh, experience and I immediately, I close the app and I didn't open it for like a week because I had so much anxiety around feeling like I had to then respond to every single person because every single one of those people had gone out of their way to say something kind to me. And just like if they had said something kind to me on the street, I wanted to thank them for being kind, but that was really overwhelming. So I just put it off for like over a week and then I finally worked up the muster to go in there. So that's perhaps the one difference for me anyway
0: that's amazing by the way that you could turn the app off for a week i feel like in this era of like checking it every five minutes that's amazing
1: i think i have an addictive personality in the sense that i'm either really on or i'm really off and so if i turn off the switch i i can go off yeah i've trained myself if i want to open instagram i open the new york times app (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, the really the only reason I open Instagram these days is because we have our trail tea uh group uh chat in there and I I have yes. to see what's up. Yes. So it's it's all your fault and Dana Jack's fault.
0: <laughs> I didn't have this on our list, but I think I think I want to ask you about it right now. Like you're you're really good friends with Claire Gallagher for example and I I was very impressed when, I don't know if it was a year ago or two years ago, she made the decision to just go totally social media dark. She turned off Instagram. Just given that you run with her sometimes in Boulder, you hang out with yeah. her. Like
1: We went to college together. We ran together. You went together to college and
0: together, ran college. together there.
1: Yeah, we go way back.
0: To the extent that you can be public about it, like how do you think that experiment has gone for her and do you see more athletes over time adopting a similar strategy, just kind of turning everything off?
1: First of all, I respect Claire so much for doing that. She, she like me, has somewhat of an addi- addictive personality, I think. And I think she kind of hit the wall where it was too much. And so she just went cold turkey on it. And I think it's fair to say she's a much happier person off of social media. Wow. And I don't think she misses it at all. I truly don't. Like Claire is someone who's so invested in the community. She has so many friends. She's always there for her friends. Like, I talked to her on the phone for, like, an hour the other day because I was going through something. Like, she she is she's the type of person, if you're in a conversation with her in real life, you feel like you're the only person that matters to her. Like, she's such a present person that I... I would imagine she's just been able to transfer that energy she was spending on social media into her real life relationships and she's also, you know, she runs for Patagonia and yep. I I guess Patagonia doesn't have any social media obligations for her which I really commend and like Black Diamond, Patagonia finds ways to use her athletes in creative ways and other ways and she is a very present voice in the community if you're if you go off the apps and go onto the Patagonia website or onto YouTube or whatever.
0: Would you would you ever go a similar route?
1: Yeah, I think I've thought about it quite a bit. I I just really like getting updates from my friends, like friends I haven't seen in 10 years, my family members I don't see very often. That's the part that would be really hard for me. I also feel somewhat obligated to be on there, at least to a degree, just working in the media industry. Like, kind of keeping up on yeah. what's happening. Uh, in, in addition to that, I would like to see a shift in the social media landscape to something that's a little bit more sustainable, a little bit less addictive, like maybe like a be real type platform where there's no sc- like auto scrolling, like endless scrolling function. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think Instagram is like the be all and all. I'm honestly waiting for its demise. <laughs> but I do like being connected on the internet to other people.
0: I don't have anything novel to add, I mean that hasn't already been said, but I I think I definitely romanticize like what would happen to my focus and my ability to do deep work if I didn't check my phone four times a day. You know, like how much of like each of those interruptions, how much does that set me back on like some podcast I'm planning or something that I'm writing or anything that requires, you know, as little interruption as possible. Like I think I, I romanticize that so much.
1: If I only checked my phone four times a day, I'd be really proud of myself. I check my phone constantly.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely, I, I definitely under, undershot that. I'm more in like the 20 to 25 time range easily. And so like I, my whole life is just a series of interruptions. And I, I think about that so yep. much. Yeah, um, and there,
1: we do live in a culture where it's, it's kind of, castigated if you just like go cold jerky for the day yeah Yeah, i feel this in in work where we have slack which is like a for people who don't know like a online texting glorified texting platform basically for for working and if i don't check my respond to slack messages within like 20 minutes i feel like i'm doing something wrong which makes it really hard to get deep work in
0: I think we have time for maybe two more topics here. Yeah, I think I'm really curious to get your your perspective, especially being at outside working for Gaia, etc. Aspirationally thinking of the running media industry, like how can we make it better? Why is it? Why do some people consider it to be in sort of a bleak state right now? I think almost by every, some
1: people you mean me because that's what I. Said well, no, <laughs> I I I
0: I, I I hear it. I hear it a lot from just about everybody though. That it's hard to make it a sustainable business model in this industry. Not everyone is always happy with the content that's being produced. So I, I know you think about this a lot. So what are some of your thoughts there?
1: I feel like it might be helpful to kind of set the groundwork a little bit first. And so I, I work for Outside Inc., which owns Outside Magazine, Trail Runner, Women's Running, Podium Runner, which got turned into Outside Run, on, which is on Outside Online, the Outside Magazine website, a lot of other publications outside of running in addition to that and then also the mapping platform, Gaia GPS, Trail Forks, the mountain bike platform. It's all over the place. And the reason that Outside acquired all of these publications is because they weren't profitable. So I'm honestly very critical of the company I work for. I I feel like I'm pretty outspoken on that, both internally and externally. But it's at the same time, I think important to remember that while Gaia was very profitable before it got acquired, in terms of the media arms of the company, they weren't. So we're already kind of dealing with a failed business model. And now suddenly you have one company that owns all of these publications that are all overlapping. Yeah. So that then presents additional challenges. And then you add on the layer that traditionally all of these publications have been supported through sales, through, through advertising. That the sales team is selling ads. And what's happened in the last 10, 15 years is brands have shifted from advertising in magazines and on websites to Google and Meta. So almost all of that money is now going to Google and Meta, which side note, I then find very strange that even companies like Outside spend paid media dollars on Google and Meta. Like, you are spending our limited amount of money on our comp- like on this competitive landscape, which is killing us. You're feeding the beast that's killing us. But anyway, side note. So the, the advertising aspect of media is declining. We've entered a recession, that's made it even worse. You add on top of that that companies like outside are trying to combat this trend by introducing a subscription model and That's somewhat problematic for a few reasons, one being that we're all conditioned to free content now. Two, now suddenly you have a subscription model, which is at at odds with the advertising arm of the industry because the the sales team, they go to these brands and they say, if you spend $300,000 with us this quarter, your ads will see 200 million people. I just made up that number. They come back and they say, well, now you have a paywall. So is that actually how many people are going to see our content? Or is it actually only going to be your subscribers? So it's all a, me- it's a big hot mess for a lot of reasons, that some of which I've just outlined. And as a result, companies like Outside have no money. So we're trying to generate content for... Three running brands, outside run, wow. women's running, trail runner, off of basically no budget, and three full time staffers on that team of three brand, a uh, three publications. So we're being set up for failure, just fundamentally, and so that to me is the biggest challenge because everyone that's working on these publications are brilliant people and are so talented and are incredible writers, incredible reporters, but they can't even produce a lot of the work that they want to do because of bandwidth. And then also because they're being forced to support our sales team and put out content that is the most clicked content. So that's like service-based content, like training plans, nutrition content, training plans. Like that's, what gets the most eyeballs? So everyone's being told to to kind of invest in that side of media, which sure is useful to some degree. A lot of obviously, a lot of people are reading it. A lot of people want it, but it's not pushing the sport forward in any way. You know, if you compare it to again a big time sport like baseball, let's look at the Boston Globe. There are columnists in the Boston Globe who have been writing for decades and decades and decades and they're helping to push the sport forward by providing ideas, critiques, insights, analysis. They're they're literally going to the players and the the managers and asking them hard questions, forcing them to rethink yeah. their strategy and their goals. Like it's it's a much more interactive relationship than what's currently happening in trail running media where you have very few people and they're all really focused on serving this base, these new runners who need training plans and nutrition content. And there's really, there's very few voices that are allowed to shine at the top of the pyramid that are serving the ex, like the most engaged people in the sport. Like I would imagine basically Everyone that listens to your podcast is somebody who's at the top of the sport, who loves the sport, is really passionate about it, diehard fan, diehard participant. Those people just aren't being serviced because there aren't that many of them. So that's a fundamental problem. (laughs) Sorry, did you want to say something?
0: Oh no! Well, I was just going to make one comment, or I guess it's more of a question. But like, I've always wondered who is leading who. Like, I know we're lamenting the fact that there's not as much resources to do human interest based reporting, and a lot a lot of it is geared towards this salesy service based content around gear reviews and and training and, and getting better as a runner. But it seems like the vast majority of the market actually wants that stuff. So I wondered, like, I, I guess a part of me wonders, like, if you polled... Consumers of outside content. I would assume. That they would probably be. Pretty satisfied with what's going on. Because you're meeting them. Where they are. And where they they what they, with what they want.
1: Outside magazine. Or outside ink.
0: Outside ink. Yeah. If you think about all of the publications. That are under the umbrella. In various areas. So like if it's like. Bicycle based training plans. Or nutrition right. for. You know. R- riding your next hundred. Stuff like that. Well the,
1: the problem is that. It just has to keep going. It's not good enough to have one training plan. You have to keep coming out with more training plans and more service-based content. You know, media is such a weird. If you take a step back, it's a very weird business to be in because, unlike selling a piece of apparel, where yes, of course the teams are constantly designing next year's apparel, etc., you're only really selling a certain number of units each year. It's like one thing that you're selling. Media, it's every single day. Just Endless stream of stuff that you have to keep producing. Does that answer your question at all?
0: No, it does. I mean, I I live that every single day. It's I, I was I was going to say horrifying, but that's not definitely not the right <laughs> word. It's it's daunting. I should say it's daunting that there isn't any. Uh, in some ways, it does scale. Like you create this podcast here, and then it goes out to thousands of people. That's that's scale. But a lot of the content is not. Evergreen. It's very transitory. It's in the moment, and you very quickly have to reset and reproduce another thing the next day. Like you very much are on it. It's it's a content mm-hmm. treadmill. So, yes, you have to truly love what you're doing because there is no end. There is no satisfaction. Your job is to entertain on a daily basis. It's it's crazy. It is Sisyphusian. You know, it's like the rolling the boulder yes. uphill, which is my but for me,
1: and Strava, yeah. I mean, that's what running is, too. Right. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Gosh, I could talk about the running media industry for hours. But yeah, I guess I would love to see more critical thinkers kind of taking a step back and like doing more column based reporting, like what you see in bigger sports and helping people make sense of the sport, because this sport is unbelievably complicated. If you're just coming into it There's the UTMB series now. There are all of these iconic races around the world. There's the Golden Trail series. There's uh, the Skyrunning series. There's 50Ks. There's 100-mile races. There's 250-mile races. How on earth are you even supposed to start to begin to grasp what the sport even is? You know, as someone just coming in. And I don't really see anybody that's synthesizing the sport at that bigger level. That's something that I would really love to see.
0: No question, yeah. And I think to add to that, at least when I look at the industry, single track included, there's almost nobody that is exclusively being a media company. Like, in in order to be a media company in our sport, you have to attach the gear reviews, you have to attach the coaching or the training plans. It does exist to some extent in like the road running and the track world with a company like Sidious Mag, but Uh, that is like we have a large enough audience.
1: I just met with our director of running yesterday, like from an editorial perspective, because I've been put in this new role as the brand lead for our our running publications. And she literally said to me, the most important pieces of content we need to be putting out right now are service-based content. To her, that is running media. So that's gear reviews, training plans, nutrition. and Wow. So it's it's quite interesting to me that you've you've narrowed the defi- definition down to, I'm assuming, race coverage, profiles, columns, et cetera, when the meat of what the pe- people in traditional media consider running media looks quite different than that.
0: Yeah, there's basically three times a year when this podcast grows. I mean, it grows at like a pretty it probably grows three to 4% month over month just by being a podcast and existing in like the apps and stuff. But there's like three major growth opportunities. There's the Barclay marathons, there's Western States and there's UTMB. And in those three moments, you have to be ready to capture all sorts of eyeballs on the sport that are just there for those three moments. But otherwise it's slow and it's, it's a grind.
1: I have a question for you. There's not a
0: captive audience.
1: If, I told you that if you interviewed a coach once a month and did really in the weeds, training philosophy, workouts, service-based podcast, and that would grow your podcast by tenfold in the next year, would you do it?
0: I don't think I would. And I know that that's that's a crazy thing to say. Well, actually, I should walk that back. Right now, I don't think I would because it's very important to me to develop a consistent brand where people know exactly why they're coming to the show, which is to do the human interest stuff, to do the race coverage stuff, to be a fan of the sport. I do understand that, like, I could do an episode tomorrow about you know how to be a better downhill runner, but then I think to myself, David and Megan Roche are already experts in that. Jason Coop is already an expert in that. Like, there's all sorts of outside does great work around that. Like. I don't want to add to the library of great stuff that's already out there and, and confuse it because I'm not a subject matter expert and I don't feel like our stuff would, would be up to par. And so I guess that's the reason why I've never done it.
1: It's an interesting tension because if you were to do that, let's just say hypothetically that it would grow the podcast by tenfold. If you were to do that, suddenly you would then be able to bring in much bigger sponsors, blow this thing up, hire more people, (laughs) and do more of the content that you love. So that's the tension that I think the running media industry overall is feeling. And that's why at Outside, there is such a focus on content that does perform well, because that then pays for the passion content that that the editors and the writers actually want to be writing and that the core audience actually wants to be reading. But the issue is it comes with the trade-off of your credibility and yep. your identity, your brand. As soon as you start doing service-based content, that's part of your brand and your identity. And I, I personally, I admire you for being protective of your identity. That's really hard to do in this capitalist framework where – The sad reality is like money drives almost everything in society and money is often at odds with like the art that we love.
0: Yeah. Call it, call it stubborn, call it right or wrong. I think this is, this is what we were talking about earlier. What I tell myself at the end of every day is like, I love the current content that we're creating and if there's a requirement of me in the future to grow the audience faster. And the only way that I can do it is by introducing a whole new type of content. Purely based out of what I'm interested in, that's sort of like the day that I probably say, well, I'm either going to retire from the show and do something else and just find another career or take money out of the equation. And then this truly becomes like a hobby with like no sponsors attached or anything like that. And I don't think that that's like a noble thing or like an un thing. I just... I, I've just learned over the years that I can't create content that I don't personally find interest in because I think that there is a lot of. I mean, there obviously service-based content is is amazing. It's good. It's necessary. It helps. Yeah, you can all say it's terrible. Then it's, it's just not in my <laughs> wheelhouse. <laughs> it's not my cup of tea. But that's. But I just don't get into the weeds. So,
1: yeah. I'm going to be optimistic for a second, which I I don't usually do. I truly believe that if there was better content, and better is maybe the wrong word, if there was a new form of content that was making sense of this sport for people who don't already understand it, or maybe it's something else. Maybe that's not exactly what it is, but there's something out there that isn't just training plans, isn't just like dumbed down listicles. There, That content exists that will bring people in and get them excited about running and about running media, and no one has to compromise. People can do the work that they love and people actually want to consume it.
0: What might be an example?
1: A column. I, You know, you look at uh, Shaughnessy, Dan Shaughnessy's, is that his first name? Column in the Dan globe. Dan Shaughnessy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, it's absurd, the stuff he says. He, he is very quick to criticize his home teams. And it's amazing and people love it. And he's helped, like he, to me, defines Boston sports in a way yep. that, not no one none of the players or managers even really do. Imagine if we had that in running.
0: I think you should do it. I think that's your column. (laughs) This is a call to action. I'm calling you out publicly on the pod. I think you'd be the perfect fit.
1: Well that's very kind of you, Finn. I'll I'll just add a couple more hours to the day and (laughs) we'll be good to go. (laughs) It is though, I mean, yeah. It's again just going back to the the corporate structure that is outside and, and and just running media in general that's not like individuals like you it's hard like proof of concepts are hard to convince anyone they're a good idea to invest in but i am trying i'm trying <laughs> trying to gut to do weird stuff and see what sticks
0: maybe this and maybe this is a little bit sadistic but like i love thinking in terms of eras and there is a part of me that smiles thinking that like okay here in 2023 we're having this conversation about what could be in running content and i kind of smile at the fact that we could just be extremely early on something that actually will have like mainstream relevance in 10 years like if it's the case that like single track was started 10 years too early I kind of find that hilarious and like the cosmic scheme of things like whatever, like it was going to come and I just totally missed the wave, you know?
1: No, then you'll just be, you'll be like Tim <laughs> Ferriss and you'll be the most popular or Joe Rogan and be the most popular podcaster ever in 10 years. I, I truly think that's what's going to happen, Finn. I think you got in at the right time. It's just, you're just in that phase right now where you have to grind it out, but then but then you become a legend. That's how <laughs> legends are born.
0: I I do want to draw one line coming back to the, maybe before we close it here, like the whole gratitude thing. I definitely don't identify with like the, the take pity on the plight of podcasters. And like, I very explicitly got into this thing, hoping I could carve out a living. I quickly realized that like, yes, I'm eking out a living, but it's kind of a terrible business model right now. And, (laughs) but it was my own choosing. I had agency in the process. I'm in right now. I could get out whenever. Don't take pity.
1: I think that's, that's exactly how I approach running too. Like, yeah, no, none of us should feel sorry for ourselves. And I, I say that I feel sorry for myself all the time when it comes to running. Like when I dislocated my shoulder and had to get shoulder surgery in the fall and couldn't run for several months, I felt very sorry for myself. I will admit it. So I'm being hypocritical, but I think we can take a step back and say like, this is, we are so privileged to get to do this. Like, yeah, you're allowed to be upset sometimes, but also, like no one's making you do this. You could just be a normal person and like go to brunch on the weekends and have a good time. And this would be a non-issue.
0: <laughs> Last question before we close up. This has been enjoyable as always. Um, well, I mean, I think we've talked a lot of, about a lot of positive things, but we'll end on a very explicitly positive note. What are you? most excited to work on around the sport of trail running right now? Like It could be something at outside. It could be in your personal running. What brings you back to a state of positivity when you think about our sport and your involvement in it?
1: I think there's several facets to that question. I was pre-med in undergrad. I come from a family of doctors and I've always been really passionate about health and getting people outside and just helping yeah, showing people the love of moving your body and being in nature. And I did not go to med school, obviously. And I'm very grateful to get to try to get people outside in another avenue that did not involve sitting in a hospital for many years slash as a career. And that does genuinely get me excited. I My entire life has – I've been trying to get my mom to get into running. I got her to go on one run once on Mother's Day when I was about 10. Probably the highlight of my life, convincing her to go on this three-mile run. And I feel like a failure in the sense that I have not – running is not a habit that she does at all regularly slash never. But I feel like I'm trying to – I'm overcompensating in other ways through trying to spread – my love of being outside and it doesn't have to be running. Running is a sport that's definitely not for everyone, but it is like, it does enrich our lives in so many ways and being outside enriches our lives in so many ways. And that really does get me excited that I feel like we're shifting back the technical technological era of like the 90s and computers and video games is maybe, I mean, video games are a huge industry, but I I feel like people are seeing the light on the benefits of being outside so that gets me excited in terms of like nitty-gritty actual work uh i honestly feel like zoe ram and i we have commiserated about the, she's the editor in chief of trail runner yeah, yeah a colleague of mine and <laughs> we're both panicking slightly at the moment because outside entered entered into this partnership with utmb and the people at the top who decided to sign that partnership are not trail runners and We also have a partnership with Ironman, like Triathlon Ironman, and that has been very positive for the company because in Triathlon, Ironman is the creme de la creme of of triathlon. In trail running, we're obviously in this new, somewhat contentious world where UTMB is taking over and trying to be like the premier race series and the way it's structured now. I know you've already talked about this extensively on the podcast. You have to do UTMB races to get into the UTMB and shop me and, and well, and it's forcing athletes to really center their entire race season on UTMB. So I personally have very mixed feelings about it. And I know Zoe does as well. And we also see that outside being associated with this giant corporation that is now UTMB is not necessarily beneficial for the identity of Outside Inc. itself as I think our leadership thinks it is. So we both look at this partnership as this burden, like, oh shit, there's this, we're suddenly associated with UTMB. We have to try to make this cool. Otherwise, it's only going to make Outside look even worse. So that's a big challenge that we're currently facing and but it's also an exciting one and it is a really fun challenge to try to tra- tackle like how can outside enhance the UTMB experience and also kind of keep it in check and be honest about what it is and whether whether it is going down a good path. I mean, we're at this really interesting precipice for the sport. And I'm very curious to see what happens over the next couple couple years with the UTMB system. I don't know if you've seen the, there's a race this weekend in France, the UTMB race, the trail d'Alsace. Yes. Yes. New UTMB race. And yeah, did you, did you watch the video on their website where like the hype video, the sizzle reel where there's these runners and they keep running into knights like dressed in <laughs> medieval wear. <laughs> I it's have not abs- yet. It is outlandish, and obviously the only reason they made it is because it's a new race and they don't have any footage from last year to turn into a sizzle reel. So I got sent that video from our video team at work, and they told us to do whatever we wanted with it. So put it on social media, put it on the web, and to me, the only way we can possibly publish that is if we make fun of it in some way. Like, this is so silly. Like, what? You're going to run into, you're going to have to combat knife, uh, knights halfway through the race and have like a tourney halfway through the race to keep going down the trail. You know, <laughs> I don't know.
0: And, and, and to add to that, I actually think that that would do wonders for the marketing of the event. Like if you do take this comedic, <laughs> uh, I don't want to say disparaging, but just like you're poking fun at an angle, that probably would ultimately do more to drive registrations yeah. than whatever their, you know, formulaic rollout of events does.
1: Well, this gets into an issue that we've discussed, which is I think running has a self-seriousness issue. And (laughs) I think it's really preventing more people from getting into the sport because it's off-putting and a little bit intimidating. And if corporations like UTMB, which is European, and I feel like Europeans already have a different attitude than Americans in general, but if everyone could kind of just take a step back and be like, this is ridiculous – we're all doing this for fun. It is objectively absurd to run for 24 hours and eat sugar and run through the night and be sweaty and gross and get lost. I think this it would be good for the sport.
0: I agree. And by the way, I think everything we just discussed in the last five minutes, this is the makings of your first uh, Dan Shaughnessy equivalent <laughs> trail running column. I think we've got Honestly, the material.
1: That is inspiring and motivating to me. Dan Shaughnessy and Bill Simmons are heroes of mine and I have absolutely no delusion that I feel like I could fill either of their shoes. But to try to take a small modicum of what they've done for Boston sports and bring it to trail running would be really fun. So thank you, Finn.
0: One last thing before we close up. Was it you that recommended Ted Lasso to me? Have you seen Ted Lasso? No,
1: it wasn't me. I have seen it. Why?
0: it's it's excellent. I'm, I'm now thinking of all these ways that we can uh, deploy the Ted Lasso spirit on our uh, our community. I think one really fascinating piece of content is if we took some coach from a totally different sport, like a tr- like hockey, and bring them into ultra running and like do like a Ted Lasso equivalent drop in on trail running. I think it'd be so funny.
1: That would be hilarious. Yes, I like so. that.
0: Anyways. Yes, Abby, always great to chat. Great to have you in the pod. I always give guests the final word. Any final thoughts, calls to action for listeners?
1: Follow Finn's coverage of all the races coming up this summer because it's going to be the best in the biz.
0: Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon, or the use of our sponsor discount codes in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.